Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. How did we get here? The UN Secretary General calling the report a code red for humanity. The evidence shows we're facing a future of extremes if changes don't happen now. 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next 20 years. Now that is 10 years sooner than expected. How did we arrive at such a sophisticated understanding of climate change and global warming and yet still end up on the edge of disaster? The world listened but didn't hear. And as a result, climate change is a problem that is here now. This is a story of remarkable science and catastrophic dithering. And at each stage, things very nearly turned out differently. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, a brief history of the climate crisis. On Monday, the UN issued a Code Red for Humanity. The report of its Climate Change Committee said for the first time that human activity was unequivocally warming the planet. Heaviest downpour in 1,000 years. The wall of water 12 metres high. China, where large swathes of Henan province are underwater. People have been trapped in the subway. Fire crews are battling fires tonight on a nearly unprecedented scale. At least eight people have died in Turkey where wildfires are continuing to and rage. And there were tragic consequences. Writing for The Times, the chief scientific advisor, Patrick Vallance, warned that floods across Western Europe and wildfires in Greece and Turkey were a sad taste of the future. Goodness, look at that. A wake-up call or just business as usual? We know this stuff by now, of course we do. What's new since the UN's last report like this in 2013 is the agonising level of urgency and the tone of certainty. This time, 700 scientists evaluated 14,000 studies. The BBC counted 42 mentions of the phrase very likely in the summary for policymakers, which is what scientists say when they're 90 to 100% sure of something. And that summary has been agreed line by line by 195 countries. Some of the damage is now unavoidable and irreversible, like the melting of much Arctic ice and a rise in sea levels. Even in the optimistic scenario, we're going to breach the 1.5 degree limit on global warming set by the Paris Agreement in the next 30 years or so. 
Some of the very worst effects can still be avoided, though. But November's climate summit in Glasgow, COP26, had better have some answers. We've had the science now. The science is unequivocal, say the IPCC. Now it is up to the government. If that summit fails, then all bets are off for these kind of events. I wasn't a scientist, I was a historian and sociologist. And I got into the history of the climate crisis while I was working at Imperial College. Dr. Alice Bell is the author of Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis, and our guide today through 165 years of science, politics and pure chance. I was helping to produce an introductory course, just a general like Climate Change 101 for first-year undergraduates. And it made me look at the climate crisis in a way that I'd previously avoided. I think like a lot of people, I cared about climate change. I worried about it. I believed in it. But I kind of avoided looking at it in the eye. And because I was working on it, I had to read loads of detailed science of quite how much ice was melting and what that meant for everybody. I had all these questions. The science gave me an awful lot of answers, but it left me with more questions, as science often does. And I found that a lot of those questions were ones that I needed to go digging in the history books for. I found all these incredible stories about all these people who had caused the climate crisis, but also had discovered that it was happening. I thought, this is a story worth sharing. Which is a very unusual way of looking at it, because actually I suddenly realised when thinking about this interview that I've never really thought about or looked at the history of how we noticed, how we began in the early stages dealing or not dealing with the climate crisis. Um, Now, one of the things that you say, which is really interesting, is that we're lucky we know climate change is happening at all. What do you mean? One of the most remarkable things about climate science is it's, it's not obvious. It takes quite a lot of scientific knowledge that comes from a huge number of different disciplines working together to be able to see that it's happening. I mean, we, it, you know, today we might feel like we know it's happening. We can see it. We can feel the heat. We can feel the rain and the floods. We can see all the, the terrifying news stories. But we still need science to be able to recognise that as climate change. You know, we could very easily still be sitting here going, oh, weather's a bit weird. And so I think that while we should feel angry that we haven't done as much action as we should have done, at the same time, I think we should feel thankful for for climate science for at least giving us that warning. That's really interesting that you could posit an alternative present whereby we were just looking at these disparate climate events and saying, oh, well, maybe a bit of sunspot, maybe a bit of this, maybe a bit of that, no big theory, no big thing to do let's carry on. And that that was actually another conceivable present. Yeah, or at least we might have done it a bit later than we had. Well, let's go through that sequentially and begin with a person I had never heard of before, a woman called Eunice Newton Foote. Tell us about her and her importance to the history of our understanding of climate science. Well, she hasn't been very important to our understanding of it because she was forgotten for so many years. So she was a scientist in America, in New York State, reasonably wealthy woman who had the time to do science in her free time. And one day in the 1850s, she decided to take some vials of gases and put them on her windowsill and to see how the sun's heat would hit these gases and what would happen. And she realised that the vial of gas that was filled with carbon dioxide trapped a lot of the sun's heat and held it for a long time. And she said at the end of the paper, almost in passing, that an atmosphere full of that gas would make for a very hot climate. And so now, looking back, we're like, it's an incredible visionary woman in 1850s. And people paid attention to her a bit at the time. But 
she was quite promptly forgotten. It was a man called John Tyndall who did some very similar research a few years later that is generally credited for that discovery. But it's, in recent years, people have discovered her story and you know, it's, it's so exciting. I think it resonates with quite a few climate scientists today, this idea of, of being forgotten and ignored. And just this week, we've had the new IPCC report and they have very brief notes about history in these IPCC reports. And previously, she hasn't been mentioned, but this year she has. Right. So you have Eunice Foote's work, which not many people hear about. And then you have John Tyndall here in Britain, who more people hear about and know about. And essentially what they're saying is, this is the effect of carbon dioxide. It traps heat in a space like the atmosphere. At that point, is anybody drawing the link with the kind of emissions coming out of the mass burning of coal, for example, and industrialization? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I found quite remarkable about looking at the Victorian attitude to burning coal was how much they put up with it. You know, there was a huge amount of pollution and they sort of just coughed through it. They almost saw it as something to be proud of. And it wouldn't be until the 1930s before people would be able to trace that. So let's get on to that, because what you paint is a picture whereby industrialisation is already beginning the process. Now let's go where you said into the first proper warning that man-made climate change is, is possible. So there was a couple of discussions at the beginning of the 20th century. There was a magazine article in America and then a couple of newspapers around the world talked about it, this idea that maybe fossil fuels could be warming the planet. But that was still quite marginal, really. It wasn't really mainstream science. And then in 1938, another British scientist, a guy called Guy Callender. He's an engineer. His day job was working for the electricity industry, but his hobby, along with tennis and gardening, was doing temperature maths in his garden shed. He just enjoyed doing temperature maths. And he looked at all of the data, which by then went back several decades, of temperatures around the world, and worked out that just in his lifetime of 40 years, the Earth had warmed by about a third of a degree Celsius. He also looked at the data we had on carbon dioxide levels and put those two things together and said, look, we really need to take this seriously. We've known for years that, in theory, carbon dioxide could warm the Earth, and I think it's already happening. And he was basically laughed out of the room. We can see the paper that he gave and also the questions, because he presented it in person at the Royal Meteorological Society, and it was published with the Q&A. And there's sorts of comments from people saying this is very courageous, by which they mean this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> We now get into the 1950s. People are more interested in the possibilities of humanity's effect on the weather. Mankind, and particularly the scientists, is tremendously curious. What's happening then about our understanding of climate science? I'd highly recommend people Google this to watch it themselves. I just sort of stumbled across it on the internet. But there was a big event called International Geophysical Year, and it's most well known for the launch of Sputnik. Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik. And there was a sort of Cold War thing brewing of, of everyone pretending that they were scientists and cooperating and just wanting to learn about the science of our planet. But actually, they were competing on who could get a satellite up first. And perhaps most important of all, the international cooperation of the next 18 months may well prove to be the first tentative step to a friendlier and a more tolerant feeling between the nations of the world. And at the launch of this, there was this incredible BBC documentary presented by Prince Philip. This attempt to find out about the Earth through the electronic ears and eyes of these rockets and satellites seems to me to be the most 
fascinating part of the whole IGY. So he's standing in the Royal Society being the central presenter, the anchor, and every now and again he kind of it cuts to a, a video clip of a scientist in another country. Here we record the shock waves reflected from the rock beneath the ice. And this incredible bit of this guy in some glaciers in Switzerland. We can calculate the thickness of it. Sort of talking about how much they're melting, even in the mid-50s. And they start talking about if all the glaciers melted, how much the sea levels would rise and that the water would start to flood Trafalgar Square and go up Nelson's Column. And hmm. that sort of imagery... We, I think, are quite used to now. Like I said, I grew up in that in the 80s, so these doom scenarios, but it was there in the 50s. And it's presented by Prince Philip, looking very nerdy and enthusiastic about science. Over the years, scientists in different fields were noticing a warming of the planet and linking it to the burning of fossil fuels. In the 1960s, they started to put together a plan. There was the first proper conference on climate science. You look at the papers from that conference and you see people saying, you know, this is something we should be concerned about. We should be doing something about it. From your book, it's clear that it's in the 1970s that some kind of debate really begins to start happening. It's um, totally useless for a lot of well-meaning people to wring their hands in conference and to point out the dangers of pollution or destruction of the countryside. It's Prince Philip again. Yes. Impassioned speeches will be so much effluent under the bridge unless it is followed by drastic political action. Yeah, well, it's a joke that sometimes people say about climate science is that nothing new, really interesting has been discovered since the end of the 1970s. We all had it settled by then, which is not very fair on all the climate scientists of the 80s, 90s and noughties. But what you see in the 70s is a bit more discussion of it. In fact, this phrase global warming is coined in 1975 and you see more politicians being briefed on it and increased concern. The time has come for man to make his peace with nature. Good evening. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you about a problem that's unprecedented in our history. So you see people like President Carter being invited to think not just about how he might be interested in solar and wind because it would help them uh, sort of avoid having to use fossil fuels because of geopolitical reasons. We now believe that early in the 1980s, the world will be demanding more oil than it can produce. But also because of climate change. Permanent renewable energy sources like solar power one scientist put the urgency of the greenhouse potential in biblical terms, citing the warning given to Noah in the Old Testament. What's interesting uh, about this period is not only do you get the development of the presentation of the idea of global warming. Noah knew trouble was coming, he said, and he prepared for it. But you also get the pushback, and you get the pushback from other people in the field, like the head of the Met Office here in Britain. Yeah, I mean, there were quite a few scientists who, I think understandably, initially thought this was just a bit doom-mongering. And that's normal within science, that you have a new idea and some people are sceptical. And one of the things that's really interesting about the 70s period is you see pe some people changing their mind. So you see several scientists start off saying, no, no, it's not a problem. Oh, oh, yes, it is. Or, oh, it's definitely a problem, but it's cooling. Oh, no, 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 it's global warming. And that's normal for science. You'll have some disagreement and people ask you questions to check it. And that's the sort of thing that's happening in the 70s. Coming up. My fellow Americans. The Reagan era. I believe in a sound, strong environmental policy that protects the health of our people and a wise stewardship of our nation's natural resources. But that's enough about me. But first. I'm Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent to The Times. 
It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Skip ahead to the 80s, the Reagan era, and the U.S. National Academy of Sciences commissions a report on the effects of carbon dioxide on the planet. The report team is led by physicist Bill Nirenberg, a veteran of the Manhattan Project which created the atomic bomb in the 40s. He wrote that climate change was a problem without need of any particular solution. We simply must learn to deal more effectively with their twists and turns as they unfold. Tell us about Bill Nirenberg. He was a serious climate scientist, but he was quite culturally different from some of the other players in the field. He done a lot of military science. And in the 70s, there'd been a bit of a pushback against military funding of science, particularly with the anti-war movement in America. We had a bit of scientists versus scientists. He's since been written up as almost a villain of the piece and that he wrote this report on climate science and kind of downplayed the risks and said, well, we'll you know, it'll happen, but we'll cope with it. It's almost like the let them eat cake line in the French Revolution. So Bill Nirenberg essentially is a forerunner or an exemplar of the... Yeah, there's something going on, but it's probably not that dangerous. And anyway, if it is, we can probably 
cope with it through a mixture of technology and simple human adaptability. Yeah, these are the origins of a lot of the messaging you get from the groups that used to be called climate skeptics. I guess now we call climate delayers. I think it's important to recognise about him is that he was a serious scientist. And it was also people like Roger Revell, who was an oceanographer, like a lot of American scientists, he'd been involved in the war and done a lot of work with the military. They had a big press conference about this report in the early 80s. And he said, we're flashing an amber light, not a red one. Now, this seems like really, I was really thinking about this just this week because the IPCC hmm. report was like, this is the red alert. And I was like, oh, now we're finally on the red alert rather than the amber light. And when I first read Roger Revelle saying that, I was kind of angry with him. I was sort of like, how dare you say that? Because you could tell it's dangerous. But I think to be fair on him and other people around him at the time, one of the things they were saying was that we can take action. You know, back then there was still so much more space. I mean, there is still space to take action now. There's just less of it. Back then, they were talking about avoiding the kind of climate change that we're living in now. But I think he didn't want to say we're all doomed. And I think that came from a a fair and sensible position. So I think we can look back on the early 80s and see the seed of what became the sceptic era. And we still have aspects of it are with us with things like climate delayers. By the end of the 80s, in general, scientists were looking at climate change as a potential problem, but not one to panic over. Well, not yet anyway. But it was a time when, around the world, environmental issues were becoming a growing concern for a lot of people. Groups like WWF or Greenpeace were fighting the hole in the ozone layer and the destruction of rainforests. Now, that meant they were a bit distracted and didn't do much on climate change, but it also meant that the Green Movement grew hugely. The 80s was a huge period of growth for the Green Movement. And that meant by the end of the 80s, when climate change started coming back on the agenda, they were a bit more powerful to start talking about it. And politicians, particularly people like Margaret Thatcher, found it very, very difficult to avoid talking about issues like climate change. It's we Conservatives who are not merely friends of the earth, we are its guardians and trustees for generations to come. had been briefed on it by her scientific advisor that it was something that she needed to worry about. Apparently, when she was first briefed, she sort of laughed and went, we'd have to worry about the weather. But she took it seriously. She was a trained scientist. One of the things we know about Thatcher is she was very astute politically. She, she knew a political problem and an opportunity. If Charles Darwin had been able not just to climb a foothill, but to soar through the heavens in one of the orbiting space shuttles, What would he have learned as he surveyed our planet from that altitude, from a moon's eye view? Mrs Thatcher ends up the 80s addressing the UN General Assembly. Yes. We have all recently become aware of another insidious danger. So she's calling for an international treaty. It is the prospect of irretrievable damage to the atmosphere, to the oceans, to Earth itself. She did a couple of speeches on climate change and they're incredible bits of speech making and you can see how her political philosophies are woven all the way through it. No generation has a freehold on this earth. All we have is a life tenancy with a full repairing lease and this government intends to meet the terms of that lease in full. This is someone saying we need to take action on climate change and do it from a very solidly Thatcherite position. And I think she saw that change had to come and she wanted that social and economic change to be patterned 
under her ideology. And I think that's one of the things that really motivated her. And she was like, we need to be here at the forefront. We can't just leave this for the left. Yeah. And then, I mean, what happened was it did end up being left for the left because of this rise of climate scepticism. But there's a very interesting link there, isn't there? She makes a speech at a Royal Society dinner in 1988, warning of the dangers of the greenhouse effect. You say she has a key paragraph which sets out some practical suggestions for global action, which her chancellor gets her to drop. Yes, Nigel Lawson apparently got the red pen out and uh, edited some of that speech, <laughs> uh, saying you can't do this, you can't do this, which I think especially when you now look back on, on how much he's been a force for climate scepticism, particularly in the UK, uh, and it seems very, very important bit of history. But actually he's been probably in Britain our most influential, we call them climate change sceptic, but I don't really think that's the right uh, phrase. Well, it's not, uh, not in the politicians' gift to decide whether the, there's going to be warmer weather. But, uh, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that uh, uh, warming in f- will have bring benefits as well as maybe disadvantages. I don't know what the right phrase is, but uh, opponent of action over climate change. Yeah, I think, I think in America it's much more dominant, but it has been, a bit, it has been part of our story. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. It wasn't even noon today when the temperature at Sioux Falls in South Dakota was over 100. At the same time as all of this sort of political and scientific stuff, people have been noting that the weather is a little bit more weird than you'd expect it to be. The heat goes on. Health advisories are out tonight in the city of Cleveland as we continue to sit under an increasingly polluted cloud of stagnant air. Health officials are advising that breathing is not a good idea, at least on the outside, if you are elderly or have any sort of respiratory problem. Some people have become so distraught they have told their congressman, God is against us. And it's very interesting that, that you should say that because you can't help feeling that this most recent UN report coming in the middle of these weather events has an impact that it just wouldn't have had a decade ago. I mean, that's definitely one of the things. When you look at the late 80s, there was a big presentation in the US Senate from a climate scientist, James Hansen, from NASA, on a very, 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 very hot day. Everyone's just sweltering. And he gave his presentation on climate change, and he said, look, it's already happening now. This isn't something in the future. It's happening now. Lots of people in America knew about global warming, but it had never really made a splash before, and it started to be talked about more. You know, I was a kid back then, and I remember it being just on the news more, you know, Blue Peter Green Badges, and it started to be talked about in a much more mainstream way, alongside things like the hole in the ozone layer and save the orangutan and save the panda. As we come into the 90s, there are two things which I think come out of what you've written, and they're paradoxical. The first is the attempt an understandable attempt by the fossil fuel industry to sow the seeds of doubt about global warming. But the other thing is that the minds of the environmental movement did not seem to be concentrated on the question of climate change, but actually seemed to be looking at just about everything else. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes I kind of oscillate a bit on this. I think, well, I think we should be critical of the green movement. And I don't know whether sometimes I think oh, it's totally understandable. They were worried about other issues. It was very difficult to talk to the public about something as abstract as climate change. But then I look at it and I go, why, why were you avoiding it? You know, they left this space open, I think. So I think the main reason why we have the forces of climate scepticism and the delay for several decades that that created, I, I really think that a lot of blame has to be put to the PR groups that deliberately sowed doubt on climate change and did it very strategically in places where they knew it was going to have impact. 
there was a huge amount of money poured into that. Can you give us an example? So the first groups that called themselves anything that looked like a climate change campaign, things like the Cooler Heads Coalition, they, they all sounded very legit. They sounded as if they care about climate change, were set up to spread doubt on climate change. And they produced lots of pamphlets so that p- people who didn't know about global warming, who didn't know the science, could be given something that looked very scientific. Uh, thank you all for coming today. Is this working? Yes. And it's my privilege to chair the Cooler Heads Coalition. I want to thank uh, the House Science Committee for hosting us today. Green tyranny exposing the totalitarian roots of the climate industrial complex. By the time you get to the 21st century, you also see this sort of adapting to be kind of like, oh, we're taking climate change seriously and kind of greenwash. So, you know, the kind of things that we're probably more familiar of today is sort of oil companies saying, I'm here to save the planet. Or, look at this solar panel I've got. Don't look at any of these oil things that we're doing. Even though the world is going through uncertain times, we know there's an urgent need to tackle climate change. That's why, at Shell, our ambition is to be a net zero emissions energy... Some farms grow food. This one grows fuel. ExxonMobil is growing algae for biofuels. From advertising from oil industries, you might think the only thing they ever do is renewable energy. They were allowed a lot of space by the Green Movement because it wasn't really until the last 20 years, 25 years, that the Green Movement started actively talking to the public about global warming. Coming up here today, I have no hidden agenda. I am fighting for my future. It was interesting how we have talked a lot about Greta Thunberg, but actually this was happening a little bit earlier. So let's just go back to the beginning of the 90s and talk about the Earth Summit. Yeah, the Greta of 1992. Losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. I am here to speak for all generations to come. People were getting ready, beating the drum for this new climate treaty that was going to be signed at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. And there was this this Canadian girl travelled to the summit and she gave a speech. And it's, it's very similar to Greta. I'm only a child and I don't have all the solutions. But I, don't, I want you to realise neither do you. She was angry and she was telling off the adults for not thinking about the future. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. A generation ago, I was that 12-year-old child. Almost 30 years later, we did not stop it. We had the first IPCC report. We had various politicians making lots of speeches and then lots of environmental groups doing stunts and and talking about it. We had the signing of, of the UN Climate Treaty in Rio in 1992. And I think that reflects something that I've seen, you know, throughout tracing this history, which is the way things get repeated. It seems depressingly familiar uh, sometimes in the past. I have to say that during the course of the interview, I've kind of felt two moods coming from you. Uh, One is surprisingly upbeat, but the other is also quite a why were we really destined to take so long given that we had recognised things. Where are you on this, Alice? I mean, do you feel, having looked at the history of climate change, uplifted by this sense of possibility and the capacity to act? Or do you feel depressed by just what it appears we have to go through before we do something? I feel both, and I think that's quite normal. Climate change is the great tragedy of not just our lifetimes, but many other lifetimes. Even if we take huge action on it, we are still in a bad position. And yet, I believe in the human capacity for invention and for fixing things. 
it had this big IPCC report. Yeah, it says things are really, really bleak, but it also says we can do this. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Dr. Alice Bell. Alice's book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis, was published last month. The producers were James Shield and Edward Drummond, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or simply thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Tomorrow, Emily Sargent is back with episode two of our mini-series, Thinking Straight. See you again soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.